This is the CRO Gumbo Podcast by Christian Louvier. Steve Davis, welcome to the CRO Gumbo Podcast. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Good deal. Steve, where are you, where are you at today? Uh, I am based in the Boston area, so I'm in the home office. Cool. Um, how big is, uh, well, tell me a little bit about, about, uh, your company and how, how big it is and the team, how big the team is that you run. Yeah. So I've uh, recently joined Impira, um, about four months ago and we are growing extremely rapidly, um, coming out of startup and stealth mode. We're a series B company headquartered in San Francisco and I'm the chief revenue officer. We're building out the sales team little by little. Um, we are almost at 10 people, but, uh, I've got some pretty big plans by the end of the year uh, to grow out to a pretty good, pretty good size sales force for a startup. What, um, what are you considering a, a good size sales force, just ballpark range? Well, it really depends on the company and the stage and, and everything, right? So for a startup, you know, 10 people is a, a good amount to get going. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to see us get to the 30 to 40 mark within a year or two. That means we're growing rapidly and I'm expanding multiple regions, North America, possibly Europe and APAC. Um, but, you know, I do y'all, I got to, I think we had 150 people in sales and marketing around the world. <laughs> so it can grow rapidly, um, but it all depends on how we're doing as a company. And, and Steve, at a high level, what does Impera do? Yeah, so Impera offers a uh, digital asset intelligence platform. Um, it's a great way to utilize artificial intelligence to give smarts to all your digital assets in your company. We ingest your assets, whether that be video images uh, from all different parts of your company. So it could be an existing DAM, a PIM, every acronym you can come up with, MD, <laughs> but including inventory, logistics, ERP systems. We take in data from everywhere and the artificial intelligence actually either creates the metadata automatically or finds um, intelligence in between all these data sources. So the folks in creative can go ahead and actually find an asset throughout a large organization and then manage the asset. And most importantly, analyze how an asset's doing across all your social platforms as well. So- Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty incredible use of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And the need is massive across multiple industries. So- we are very, very excited. Yeah, it sounds like, a, uh, in layman's terms, I mean, it almost sounds like an amped up version of internal Google for the enterprise creative or something. It's, it's interesting because we, yeah, you know, we work with a lot of companies that already have like G Drive and Box and Dropbox. And we say, that's fine. You don't even have to replace those systems. We'll take in the data and make it useful. And so it's been a great story for us when we're talking to creative departments even IT departments that can't, can't locate and manage your assets. So <laughs> it's been really good so far. That's awesome. Um, good deal. So, so Steve, um, I, I think I first came across, uh, well, I know I first came across you when you were at, at Uyala, um, probably when you first became head of sales there, um, you, you've had a extremely impressive background from a, um, I mean, a sales perspective, but also like an effectiveness perspective. Um, is, is there a love of process you have, or is there some kind of um, something in your background that gives you an edge because there's just success after success? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I think it's funny. It's been a, it's been a journey, right? So 25 years in software, 
and I started as an SDR, right? So I did SDR work and worked up to CRO and everything in between. So I think my background when I was a sales engineer for a couple of different companies, that gave me a really good understanding of you've got to constantly be differentiating your technology, but with a business mindset. So you don't sell on features. These features mm-hmm. are different, but here's why it's important to you, Mr. Customer. You're you're always empathizing with what's the value a customer can get out of your solution. So I've kind of taken that approach through every job within sales I've had and you know, SDR, SE, AE, then regional manager, general manager, and CRO. It's all the same job and, and you do follow a fairly strict process. So, you know, when you're talking to customers, it's better to ask questions and sit back and be quiet, right? So there's all there's a lot of sales subtleties I always talk about. I mean, deals mm-hmm. are lost on sales subtleties, but a lot of it comes down to are you showing the most value for your software to that particular customer? And follow that process along the entire uh, evaluation. So I didn't. I didn't actually. When I was doing my research, I missed that part. So, um, so you were a sales engineer as well, which is a pretty unique transition. Um, so, do you, did you start it there? Or you started as an SDR. Yeah, I did. I did SDR work to start, and that was way back at PeopleSoft before it was acquired by Oracle. Mm-hmm. And PeopleSoft was a massive company, and it was fantastic. Great time to be there. Uh, with the Y2K stuff. Now I'm really dating myself, but, um, and I was given the opportunity by a great manager I had who who said, you know, do you want to get into sales or sales engineering? And at that point I wanted to really learn the product. And Mm -hmm. so I went to the SE ranks and did that for a bunch of years, did it there. And then had a blue martini software, another great dot-com company. And it was at blue martini. Then I got the opportunity to go to Asia Pacific for the first time and when I did that, I became kind of technical director of the region, hire, started really hiring and managing more. And then when I came back, I said, okay, it's, it's time. I'm, I'm ready to be an AE. And that transition was really hard. It's interesting. They, the transition they, from the technical from, side to the sales side? SC to AE is a really interesting uh, transition. And okay. what I have found in hiring, you know, it's almost like 80% failure rate. So your best SEs wow. fail at becoming an AE. It's a massive, massive percent that fail. The 20% who don't fail are typically your top reps in the entire company. Sure. And yeah. You know, I mean, they're like the unsung heroes of every sales career I've had. I mean, that's why that 80% surprises me. Yeah. Well, it, it's just such a different, such Skill a different set. job. And that yeah. first year, the struggle is how do you build pipeline? Like an SE gets called to a lot of meetings, but when you're there trying to schedule your meetings and build a pipeline, <laughs> it's really difficult. It so, gives you appreciation for those front lines, doesn't it? That's exactly right. And so, yeah, the SCs who do make it typically become your top, your top uh, producing AE. So that's what I've seen in my career anyway. When you started, let's, uh, your career, you mentioned like Y2K, which, um, for everybody who was, let's just say born in the nineties, um, Y2K was basically the, everybody thought the world was going to end when 99 turned into 2000. Um, and when you were doing software back then, let's see, Salesforce got started in what, 2004 ish. So that was kind of, let's just call it the birth of real SaaS. Um, you didn't have a lot of products on the market. And now 
I saw a quote this morning, like Dave Cancel from Drift. Um, well, actually, I guess you know him because he's in Boston or know who he is at least. Um, he was saying at his conference that by 2024, there's going to be like over 30,000 SaaS products. Um, what? How do you, your edge back then was knowing your competition, understanding the, the, the customer's problems, being able to solve for that. How do you advise your, your reps on the front lines now to keep up with that fast pace? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I, I think for me, it's funny. So in, in 2003 or four, I joined Demand Tech, which was eventually bought by IBM. And Demand Tech was one of the first SaaS products on the market. In fact, again, dating myself, there used to be these great commercials by IBM called IBM On Demand. Mm-hmm. And they were these awesome commercials about the cloud before anyone was really <laughs> calling it the cloud. Really? And, on demand back then was basically demand tech. And we were one of the first SaaS companies, us, Salesforce, and a few others. And so back then, we it was a completely different issue. It was us saying, no, please trust that we will make your data secure in the cloud, not <laughs> on-prem. So there's always something, right? So back then, you were proselytizing about the, the, the virtues of SaaS. Now, it's there's 30,000 SaaS companies out there. And I think it still comes back to no matter what software you're, you're, you're doing, the newest stuff these days is really AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, which everyone's claiming. Mm-hmm. And so for us, I always tell folks who either work for me or are looking for a position at a company, really know what you're getting into. And that's that technical background. Really know, is it true AI? Is it machine learning? Or is it marketing speech uh, speak? Mm-hmm. And if it's not marketing speak, how can you differentiate against all your competitors and find those differentiators that drive value? So that's kind of what I, what I tell folks to do. Um, so Steve, you're in a unique spot in that you're hiring those, those first 10 and that's usually on the sales team. And that's, that's usually pretty critical. Uh, is, do you have like a go-to process for that, uh, in terms of, what type of experience you're looking for, or is it completely uh, scattershot depending on the company you're at? It's a little bit of both. So I do have a hiring template I try to follow, but <laughs> it, it does a lot depend on the company. So for instance, you know, demand tech and IBM was a wildly different sale. Every, you know, average selling price was multi-million dollar sale versus Uyala, which could have been anything from, $25,000 to a couple million dollars. It was all over. Um, Impira right now, we are creating pricing right now as a startup. And that's part of my job in my first four months in. And what we're looking to do is, is kind of that have both right an enterprise model and, you know, an off the shelf, small to medium business model as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a different salesperson. So my enterprise reps, I try to hire, they've got 10 years experience. And you're not hiring off the street, typically anyone who I would trust to do an enterprise deal, multi-million dollar, highly competitive deal. Mm-hmm. You do experience for that. However, I'm very willing to hire young folks, whether it's a couple years out of college or been an SDR, to handle the smaller ASP, faster deal velocity deals. Mm-hmm. And you need both on a team to do well. And that's kind of the hiring template at, at Impura right now. So there's the, the SaaS model of it's, it's fast deals. You know, you want two to six week sales cycles versus an enterprise deal, which can be three to nine months. Sure. Very, very different AE. 
Yeah, Steve, let's let's dive into I want to dive into that a little bit when you're talking about the experienced sales rep. So um and, and when you were talking about pricing specifically, so at this stage, can can you tell us a little bit about I mean, your how you how you are transparent with an enterprise level customer uh and also get them to not to use such a cliche term, but partner with you to figure out what that pricing looks like because that's usually a delicate dance. Yeah, and we just went through this. So I can't tell you who it is yet, of course. Okay. But uh, they, they, that's where I was yesterday at our kickoff. We have a uh, Fortune, I think 100, maybe 250, uh, multi, multi-billion dollar company just signed with Impura. Um, great news for us, multiple divisions. And what we did, and you're right, it's a dance. It's, yes, we're charging you a lot of money and we're a new company, but our platform is unique. And that's the whole part of that sales process, showing value at every point and explaining that even though other companies claim to have AI, it's not AI from the ground up. And there's a major difference between a software company that was built on an AI platform versus a company that has software that's trying to plug AI on top of it, right? Right. So then you, you talk to these big enterprise companies and say, look, here's the ROI, here's the return on investment and the benefits. And you have to lay that all out. Otherwise you're never going to get the amount of money that you're hoping to, to receive. So, you know, we went through that dance. It took a long time, uh, <laughs> procurement and legal and all the normal stuff. And it's a large company. So they put you through the ringer, but as long as you keep proving out your value, you can charge uh, large enough fees that back up the value of your product. Perfect. Last thing I wanted to touch on, Steve, uh, relevant to the CRO position is, um, you know, your first spot was CRO at Uyala, and then now you're chief revenue officer at Impira. Um, the, and, and from what I can tell, the position hasn't, the chief revenue officer position hasn't been, uh, I guess, hundred percent defined, um, from one place to the next. Um, do you find that, do you agree with that statement? And then the other thing is, how do you, how do you define what the role of the CRO is? I totally agree with that statement. And uh, it's funny when I, when I left Uyala, after Uyala got acquired in April, um, that's when I, I left and I, I, I was lucky enough to have a few offers and the offers are really funny. The CEO said, so one of the CEOs said, so tell me what's the difference between a CRO and a VP of sales. So you get those questions. <laughs> um, it can mean a, a number of different things. It does depend on what stage the company is at. So CRO to Yala meant I ran all of sales and marketing. Um, CRO positions, other places mean you run sales and customer success. And that's more of the typical uh, role that I, I'm seeing defined as CRO. So it's all revenues, right? It's not just new prospects and new sales but you're also looking after your existing customers and add on revenue and their success, which goes hand in hand. And I think that's a, it's a wonderful way to tie the positions together to add the most amount of value to your own company, because what it does is ensures that CROs and their teams are selling proper sales deals. You're not overselling a deal that software can do. You work with the customer because if I own the customer success, I need to make sure that we're implementing the package in the proper way and we're selling the package that we have. So that's the typical, I mean, I've also seen CRO own services as well. So sales services, customer success, it really depends on what company and what stage you're at, but it's typically a combination of those instead of just being the VP of sales, which is looking after new sales. 
Got it. Yeah. And um, when you came out of, uh, you went to UMass, correct? I did. Got it. When you came out of UMass, did, and I know you said you went right into sales. Was your like long-term vision to be some type of sales leader? No, not at all. In fact, I went into marketing research. So my first job, uh, I was a business major at UMass and I got, they did a recruitment at, you know, at the school and it was done in Bradstreet which was the financial services company based in the Boston area. And they owned AC Nielsen. Nielsen at the time was very famous for the TV Nielsen ratings. You won't believe this. I literally just got a survey with $2 in it yesterday. Oh, that's incredible. I can't can't believe it. I can't believe that exists. So that was what was famous for Nielsen. Meanwhile, that made up about 10% of the entire company revenues. The Mm -hmm. other 90%, they were very uh, known for Nielsen Marketing Research. And that's the, the, the company I was part of in Nielsen. And that first job out of college was be, basically being a marketing research analyst with all the other kids out of college. And I, I probably learned more about business in those three years than I did at any other job I've had since. I mean, it, it was wow. incredible. They put you in front of Gillette, Kodak, Mobile Chemical, Bausch & Loam, like every large company you could think of. Um, and they just throw you right at it. You're 21 years old and you're going in, you're presenting to a room full of executives. Um, so you learn a ton about business. That's great. It was a bit of a grind. And I had a boss way back when he said, you know, the best thing you're doing for our company right now is on the prospecting front and, you know, using the marketing research to, to sell more add-on products. And I was decent at it. And, I, I listened to him, saw the direction of the company and said, you know what? I just don't, this marketing research thing isn't for me. And that's when I took that job with PeopleSoft and, and joined as an SDR. And that was, you know, I had no idea about leadership, but I knew I wanted to get into the sales side of it because I, I was more successful at that than kind of sitting behind a desk and doing research all day. <laughs> I was not the greatest analyst you've ever met. I was decent at the sales side. And so I, that's when I made the leap and, I've never left really Silicon Valley since it's, it's been a, it's been a wonderful ride. Have, have you ever gone through any type of, you know, aside from maybe IBM formal sales training um, that, that to speak of? Yeah, actually a ton. So, and, and okay. that's, you talked about sales process. I should have answered it that way too. You know, I'm a huge believer in sales enablement. It's kind of the fancier word they call it now. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. You're trying to build consistency across eventually a worldwide global sales team. And the only way you can do that is through proper sales enablement. Um, so the PeopleSoft training I got was pretty fantastic. You know, you, you went through, and that's when I went from SDR to SE, but they had everybody sit through it and we did negotiation training. And now, you know, it, there's value selling, there was solution selling, there's uh, hope is not a strategy. I mean, there, there's all the, all the different sales training and what I always tell people is like, look, if you're a veteran AE, you've been through a, a lot of different types of training and IBM's is a little bit different. You mm-hmm. always pick up something different from every place you get your sales training and that's all it's for. You know, I, I, I always laugh like, yeah, as, as an AE right now, if I were to take sales training, I would hope that 80 to 90% I've heard all of it, but there's still something you're always learning, you know, five to 10% you might get, oh, you know what, that's a good tip. Um, I am a huge believer in value selling. I, I think it's in this day and age with your 30,000 SaaS companies, mm-hmm. it's the best way to continue to differentiate. And even if other companies are doing it, you figure out how you're uniquely doing it 
And uh, yep, so I am a, a huge believer in sales enablement and, and all the different types of training. Some are better than others. Um, but yeah, I always implement some type of sales methodology followed on by training. Um, you you uh, lived in uh, Asia Pacific, uh, Australia. I saw, was there anywhere else um, besides Sydney? Yeah, so so at Blue Martini, um, I was given an amazing opportunity. Uh, we were growing crazy. And, and again, I went from Y2K to .com, which was pretty <laughs> fantastic. So I've always picked a good crowd to follow, um, try to stay ahead of the trends. And now I'm doing it again with AI. Um, you know, and, and then I was uh, an SE and they asked if I wanted to be technical director and start up Asia Pacific. So me and a gentleman named Bill Evans, he was the general manager of APAC. He lived in Japan. I lived in Sydney and we both flew all over and opened up four offices around Asia Pacific and signed customers in every region, every sub region of Asia Pacific. And that was a two year run. And that was fantastic. And then when I came back as technical director, I went into sales and then fast forward another, let's say 10 years. And I was at Uyala and our CEO said, we're having some issues in APAC. And, and that region was well established already. And our parent happened to be Telstra at the time. And Telstra is a $60 billion or $30 billion telco. In Australia. <laughs> in Australia. Yeah. So if you want to go back to Australia, and I, this time I've got a wife and kids, and everyone was game, and it was really exciting. <laughs> so we lived in Australia again for two more years. So I've lived in Australia for four years of my career. Uh, and in between that, um, at Blue Martini, I actually helped start up the European offices with a different gentleman who ended up staying but I came back after six months. So I've done Europe for six months and APAC on and off two different jobs, uh, two different companies uh, for two years each stint. And it's fabulous. The amount of experience you get from living overseas is you, you just can't learn in a buck. You can't, you, you gotta go. It's, it's an incredible experience. That's such a cool opportunity uh, that you got to go back after you'd already been with your, your kid, especially obviously your whole family, but your kids, yeah. Um, they, they may not get that again for a while. Um, do, do you speak Japanese? Uh, I speak about five phrases. Okay. <laughs> no, the answer is no. Um, Japan is the hardest country to manage by far. Uh, okay. in Pacific. And it really all comes down to, you've got to hire really, really well. You've got to get a country manager. Um, and it, it, a foreign, in my experience, a foreign country manager does not work. Um, it's a, what do you, what do you mean by that? You need Japanese talent. You have to have a Japanese office with Japanese talent, Got um, it. that is the culture there and putting someone, even if they're a, an American, a European, and you speak fluent, beautiful Japanese, it doesn't matter. It doesn't it. matter. You can be on the team, but you need to be. Uh, in my opinion, but what we've seen as success, a Japanese country manager and team is how their culture works. And that's fine. So, you know, it, it's such an important uh, position to hire. Otherwise, Japan will not work. Steve, uh, you've got a very uh, unique name. <laughs> um, yeah, right. what, who's the who's the coolest Steve Davis that you've been confused with or that you like? Oh, that's a funny question. So there are. <laughs> This. I'll give you the, the most famous, the coolest Steve Davis of them all is the, the billiards player in, in from the UK. So okay. if you're familiar, you or you know, the listeners aren't familiar, just look up Steve Davis Billiards champion. He's a he was, legend. He was the first YouTube video that popped up. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah, my, my YouTube videos don't pop up over uh, 
Steve Davis, the billiard champion. So um, I have been confused. There are a, pro- a number of AEs named Steve Davis. And back in the day, uh, there uh, he worked at one of my competitors, I believe oh, wow. in Atlanta. And I got an email from a prospect meant for him, and it came to me. And I was honest about it. And I wrote back and I said, hey, you mean this guy <laughs> from this company. However, you should hear about our solution for Blue Martini. There's a growth hack. <laughs> start, start a competitor fake names with the same name as your competitor. There you go. There you there's go. A growth hack. I think there's another one. The other famous one was the president, I think, of Rulala. I think his name was Steve Davis. There's a lot of them for sure. Yeah, gotcha. Um, are you a good pool player at all? Decent. Not billiards, but regular pool. I was, uh, I was probably better in college, but uh, yeah, decent. I'm trying to play teach the kids now, so it's good. Speaking of uh, college, uh, talk to me a little bit about your tennis career. Did you play that from from uh, the get go, and then went to UMass and beyond? Yeah, so I, I, my my latest stint, the, the furthest I got was uh, Division One college tennis, which was great, a wonderful experience at UMass. Loved it and had a had a great team. And um, you know, it's it's so ultra competitive. You come out of high school and you feel like you're wow, I'm a pretty good tennis player. And I was small and, and, and you joined college and you're playing against grown men and you get your ass kicked pretty, pretty frequently, <laughs> which is, it's good for you. It's eye opening. It makes you hard, you know, tougher and, and you got to work harder and it's, it didn't come easy anymore. So once you hit a certain level uh, of, of competition, a couple things happen. It's like, wow, you know, this is, this is going to be hard. Every, every match is incredible. And then I remember, I, I remember when my career I knew wasn't going any further. We played one of the Southern schools and I got destroyed for the first time in my life, like really beaten badly. What do you, what do you mean? Uh, like Southern, like in the, they play in the heat all year. Well, like, I mean, like, well, we played either. It was like West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky, one of the Southern schools. And those got schools it. are just better. They're just, they play year round outside mm-hmm. and they're, they're just, they're typically better than the schools in the Northeast. And yeah, I got wiped off the court and I left that day going, okay, there's nothing I can do that's ever going to get me at that level of tennis. And, uh, it, it, like, it was a wonderful experience. And then, so now I, you know, I haven't played competitive like that level in a long time, but I still like to go out and, and hustle and play uh, when I can. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it really is nuts when you first go to college at, you know, any level and you're just like, cause you thought you were the shit in your town. Yep. And then yep. <laughs> you're like, uh, Oh wait, there's like 10,000 more better than me or whatever that number is. Yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's a fun. And I remember it too. And it's, it's what every 17 and 18 year old probably needs in their life. Yeah. At some point, you know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, All right, Steve, let's do uh, our quick hit Q and a, um, the answers are meant to be quick, but, uh, feel free to opine if you wish. Um, what software do you use the, the most on a daily basis? Uh, I would say right now it's Slack. I'm on Slack constantly. So just for work or are you into like, uh, other groups and stuff? No, just for work. And we use it a little outside of work, but yeah, Slack takes up a lot, a, lot, a big part of my day that I'm trying to figure out how can I stay on Slack, get the answers done and do my day job. Did you, uh, have you happened to hear the, the origin story of how Stewart started that company? I do not know that. No, I'll have to send you the interview. It's pretty incredible. He did an interview with uh, Reed Hoffman about it, but essentially it started as a, a virtual video game company. (laughs) They, uh, they spun out their internal chat app to save the company, which was Slack. That's Um, incredible. 
it's a pretty cool interview to hear, but I'll send it to you. Um, Steve, what's your favorite mobile app? Yeah, I thought about this one for a little bit and I, I still Google maps. I'm traveling all the time. There's just nothing I use more like than, than Google maps, pick it up and whether I'm walking in New York city or driving to Maine, like I, I just use it constantly. It's crazy. It makes you wonder how you lived without it before. Exactly. Uh, uh, what do you think there's something easy that most CROs overlook? Yeah, I think, you know, when you talk to CROs, I think sometimes they lose the forest or the trees. And, and I think they, you overlook some of the, the nuances and details of your product. Um, I still, in my kind of a tech background, I love to find those little differentiators that add value. And I think some CROs overlook that and don't kind of roll up the sleeves and get into the product. And again, that's, it's not that it's bad, but I, I do find when I talk to some sales leaders, they don't like that part of the job. They're much more on the, the bigger sales strategy stuff. And I'm like, mm-hmm. ah, some of the biggest deals I've ever won are on these little feature functions that you can differentiate as long as you're, you're proving the value of that feature. Got it. Um, Steve, if you were a professional walking onto a tennis court, what would your song be for intro music? So I think the, the better, I like the batter up kind of like baseball, Fenway, walk up. I think it's better in that environment than tennis. So what would your batter up song be at Fenway? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, if again, aging myself, if you want to get the crowd fired up, it would be something from Nirvana, probably aneurysm. Just just a nice. unbelievable song and it gets everyone fired up and gets going. So I'd go I'd go nineties grunge. Yeah, that genre has kinda gone by the wayside, unfortunately. It was a good one. Yep, um, yep. what turned you on creative creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um Probably music. Uh, I'm a huge music fan, all different genres. I think when you hear certain music going, it, it puts you in a different mindset, whether that be a work or even personal, personally. And um, I played it's kind of, you know some instruments back in the day and just I've always loved either live music or just even all different types of new music. So I, I think that always puts me, sets me in a, in a pretty level state when I need, when I need to chill out a little bit. Uh, Steve, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Hmm. Well, if I was young, it would have been pro, pro tennis for sure. Pro tennis. What what profession would you definitely hate or not like to do? God, I, I would think accounting. I think I would, <laughs> that's the number one good answer <laughs> for accountants. Just be an accountant day after day. I think I lose my mind. Last question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You barely made it, but I'm happy to have you. <laughs> Got it. Uh, Steve, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what, uh, how, how should they do that? Uh, LinkedIn's the easiest. So uh, just go on LinkedIn, reach out to me, and I'm uh, glad to, glad to uh, say hi back. Cool. Steve Davis, thanks for joining me on the Ciaro Gumbo podcast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to CRO Gumbo. If you are a CRO or an executive leader at the intersection of sales, marketing, and customer service, and want to innovate around your existing revenue processes, or if you want to find some places where some lost revenue may be occurring, feel free to text us for more information on how we can help you. Text CRO to 555 that's C-R-O-555-888. Now go innovate.